the reason that it has changed is because the world that it is referencing has changed. Yeah. It's not just because times have changed and like we don't write scripts this way anymore. Like it, yes, it's that. But it's primarily because the job of science fiction is to comment on the real world. And if the real the base reality, right? We're not talking about simulation theory here, but that, I'm just using that <laughs> that that word. If if like if reality has changed, then the reality being commented on by science fiction has changed. 100%. And that just like if if your show is narratively cohesive in that way, you're doing science fiction yeah. correctly. Let it go. The show about the things stuck in our heads. My name is Matt, and I use he/him pronouns. Hey, I'm AC. I use they/them pronouns. And today, um, I don't know if we told you what we were going to do last time, but if we did say we were going to do Reliant K, surprise, we are not. We are going to do Star we Trek: lie. Strange New Worlds because you know why? It's been stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also because I, I will say, coincidentally, right. Matt texted me and was like, "Hey, what if we did?" A Star Trek Strange New Worlds episode, and I said, Matt, are we cosmically linked? Because I'm literally watching it right now as I'm Yeah, I think what I texted you was, are you much of a Star Trek person? And they said, I'm literally watching Strange New Worlds right now. Literally watching it right fucking now. And and I was thinking, huh, I love this show. We should talk about this on the show. But before we get to any of that, I'll just lay it out here. We've got some business, and then we have a couple nugget ish things we want to talk about today so this may be a bit longer of an episode business in the front party in the back (laughs) exactly (laughs) you've had that one locked and loaded yeah (laughs) (laughs) so business we've decided that we're going to call this this episode that you're listening to right now the end of a season whoa and we're going to take a little break we will be back October, November-ish. We already have plans for a really awesome first episode and literally right before we recorded We started making plans for a really great second episode for season two. (laughs) We're excited. (laughs) Definitely a break and not like anything to be scared of if you enjoy the show. Yeah. We just want to be conscious, I think, ahead of time that like doing something this regularly is draining, right? Yeah. And and, like it's super fun and we're having a good time, but also just want to like, I don't know, make this not feel like work. Um, Yeah. We're in it for the long haul. We're having fun. We also, like, want to take advantage of this is the first, like, project project that Matt and I have gotten to take on together. Um, even, I mean, I guess maybe some of our projects in college, mm-hmm. like, we, we did stuff together. But this is our first project together in a long time. And I think, like, I don't know, Matt and I, you might be surprised, listener, really like to do, like, postmortems on things <laughs> and, like, figure out what's working and what we want to change. Yeah. So... Um, you know, we want to come back to you new and refreshed in the fall with a whole new slate of things we can't stop thinking about. I promise that between now and then we won't just stop thinking. That certainly won't be the case. Correct. Correct. <laughs> we'll just maybe come back with a much longer list of things a little bit more planned out than, than we went into this. 
this. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about that exact thing right now and just like creative inspiration. Uh, you know, I've heard the phrases creative input versus creative output, right? And like, I actually still feel really inspired for this show in particular. Yeah. But I don't know. I've seen our list start to dwindle and like the ideas come a little slower and I'm excited to have a couple months where we can just like experience things and then immediately yeah. we'll have like a bunch of ideas. A hundred percent. Formalize things like social media plans, formalize things like, you know, what are our, what segments are we living on the show? That kind of stuff. Hey, maybe I'll finally get a website, Matt. And then when you ask me where people can find me on the internet, it will be a website. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to, we're going to take a couple months off. We will be back. I will say it. For, I can't really nail it down right now, but it's going to be October, November-ish, probably early November. Yeah. Um, we're kind of lining something up with a, with a release date. So Ooh. we'll figure that out. While we are taking a little bit of a break, um, I want to use this time personally to basically give myself some structure on uh, the YouTube stuff that I make. So I have talked on this show several times about the fact that I make YouTube videos about games and technology. And I don't know, AC, we both got different neurodivergencies. Yeah. And one way that mine takes shape is like a paralysis in getting things done. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty classic for executive function. Executive function <laughs> in this economy. I know, right? I don't have any. Uh, but something that helps me is putting structure on things and uh, being responsible to people. And so I wanted to say to people that listen to this show that basically as a replacement in my in my sort of like work, but also a replacement if you want to do something on days when this would normally release in the meantime, I'm going to have a YouTube video out every two weeks at the very least. So I will be trying to do those on Tuesday mornings like we do with the podcast. I'm not going to hold myself to what kind of video that might be. It may be a short. It could be a video about like what a really great game is. Uh, Yeah. And it could be very similar to this podcast where Matt is convincing you why you should play a video game. Yeah. I've I've got a small like short series that I'm working on right now called Blank is a Good Game because I want to deliver something that was the simplest message as possible. Yeah. Right. And so that's a fun series that I'm working on trying to figure out how video essays work in a short form uh, video thing. But I also... I'm not going to do all shorts, um, but cool. yeah, one video every two weeks. You can go check that out. That's at matthorton.live, like everything else is in the meantime. And then when we get back on schedule, I'm going to try and keep that up and, and basically do it on off weeks. Yeah. Um, Heck yeah. You should watch Matt on yeah. YouTube. I promise the videos are good. I know I'm biased. Of course, we always have a nugget and I feel bad um, <laughs> immediately springing this on AC because they literally just walked out of this movie. I did. But- I want to talk about Oppenheimer and AC, you are fresh. Like I saw it two nights ago. So I walked out of the movie theater one hour and 15 minutes ago. Yes. (laughs) I mean, where are you with it? It's so much movie. This feels very interesting because I am still so fresh. My immediate first thought was, I don't think I liked that. (laughs) And like, that's also, you got to give it the context of like, I don't think I liked that. And also it's still like it was a good film. Yes. I have some questions about it. And I have some like Christopher Nolan specific like thoughts about it because I certainly like the thing is, is like it's a movie. I don't know that I really liked it or I'll rush to see it again. Um, But also it was a Christopher Nolan joint, like a Christopher Nolan film. And I like Christopher Nolan's movies. So <laughs> I think I am with you on almost all of that. I would not use the words I didn't like it. Um yeah. I just think that I think technically it is his best film. 
Oh, interesting. Like, I don't, I don't mean that, like, oh, technically it's, like, his best film, like, overall. I mean that, like, from the, what it takes to make a movie, like, the mm-hmm. mechanics of making a movie, I think it is his best film. Mm. I have a lot of problems with it. <laughs> mm. Like, it, like, my, I mean, this is, like, not a new opinion at all, but, like, it, it is trying to do a lot to apologize for itself, but also Oppenheimer. I mean, literally the last third of the movie is, is a straight up just like parade of apologies. Yeah. And it, I, I do think it takes an overall nuanced take about a person. Right. But almost its existence. We've talked a lot about like the, the existence of like nuanced tellings of certain characters, like actually mm-hmm. introduce too much uh, complication sometimes. And like, are, are maybe worse for the world than just kind of like leaving some maybe slightly wrong opinions in the other direction, right? Yeah. Just at bay. And I, I mean, the answer is that Christopher Nolan gets obsessed, obsessed with things just like you and I do and decides he's going to sure. make a movie about something. But like, I kind of wonder like, what was the point? Sure. Yeah. I, I think, I, th- I think I really agree with that. I, I like, I, I did not leave that movie feeling like, satisfied that the intention was in the same way that in in Inception like when I walked out of the theater in Inception I understood that the intention was to plant a a seed of doubt in my mind Mm -hmm. and like maybe this is just like a a I'm clearly uh, one of the the kinds of communists that this movie has a lot to say about Mm -hmm. right like I'm not a communist but that's because I'm a socialist and that's like a different thing (laughs) right but like the I don't I didn't walk away from it being like, wow, I've never considered that about J. Robert Oppenheimer mm-hmm. or wow, I've never considered that about the series of events. I, I do think that like my, one of the th- things that's hardest for me about this film that I was able to immediately identify is that I wish that it was more in one category or the other between a narrative retelling of this man's life and an art film about this man's yep, life. I agree. And like I think it could have been a really fucking good art film. And it's the first time I've watched a Christopher Nolan movie that I felt where I felt like it almost lacked perspective. And like I don't know that that's the right way to put it quite like because I haven't had a ton of time to marinate on it. Right. But what I walked away from it feeling was that it just wasn't and not that a movie has to be satisfying, but that it didn't satisfy my understanding. Like why other than the way that Christopher Nolan likes to tell stories, why a disjointed timeline, right? Where in other Christopher Nolan films, the disjointed timeline slides into place and gives you a sense of awe and reconstruction. And there are certainly moments where the, like, without giving too many spoilers, right? Like the um, visual elements mm-hmm. of the film and the storytelling are trying to tell you something the sound about design how especially. the sound design, right? Like how characters' minds are destabilized, right? Mm-hmm. How Oppenheimer's mind is destabilized by his own thoughts, by his own perspective, by his own understanding of what he has wrought. And then it just feels like, I don't know, the rest of it is this like funny, like not not funny, but like this little vignette of 
have you ever considered you're not the main character? And then it's, I don't know. Yeah. And the political thriller aspect of it too, it's trying to do a lot. I agree with you. It could have been an incredible little biography or it could have been an amazing art film. Right. Yeah. And the way that I say those words is that is a movie that should have been 90 minutes. Yeah. Like you could have done the political thriller with, with, um, Robert Downey Jr. Thank you. I can't believe I forgot Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. should win an Oscar for this movie. Robert Downey Jr. is incredible in this movie. And I think if you did the art film version of this movie, he doesn't belong in it. Yeah. Right? 100%. Like, all of the stuff where, like, Oppenheimer's in his own head and the sound design is telling you what his emotions are. I'm being really you know, sort of cagey for people that haven't seen the movie. I mean, but, it's, it's history. Yeah. It, we're not, there's not spoilers. Well, here, yeah, but the thing I'm trying not to spoil watching, is, right? is yeah. sort of the techniques that, the, yes, that yeah. Nolan uses. That stuff is really interesting to me. And like maybe Robert Downey Jr. And Jr. in that movie would be like a bit part, right? He would be there for 10 minutes and, and yeah. gone, but you could do the political thriller as well. The, the trial that he essentially gets put on. Um, yeah. And that would also be a good movie, but doing them the same time, almost you said this thing where like Nolan likes to do these disjointed timelines and I think it kind of exists because he likes that. Like he read, he read that book and then was like, oh, this is interesting. I could do a time thing with this. Yeah. And like, I don't know that it was necessary. And I understand that it's like, okay, it's the perspective of each of them in these different moments reflecting on the past, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I understand the framing of it. I, th- I think I understand anyway. And I just, I, I just don't, I don't think it was as successful as some of his other time manipulation stories. And, like, I think that the other thing is, like, we know from the Batman movies that Christopher Nolan, or even the prestige, Christopher Nolan knows how to tell a unidirectional, like unidirectional, a, a straightforward timeline story right. where there is some distraction happening, right? I don't know. I also have other bigger feelings, but I'm going to let you get an opportunity here. Oh. Are there other things you really want to Well, say? I was going to say that The Prestige, you very well know, is my favorite movie. It's a great movie. <laughs> it's a great fucking movie. And it, like, was the thing that introduced me to sort of, like, that disjointed sort of time narrative thing, right? He's going back and forth between different time periods, and you're seeing people at different points in their lives, and you're not quite sure exactly how the order of events is happening. I mean, hell, like, the man's first movie is Memento, right? Like, yeah. Like, he loves this shit. And also, like you said, we've seen him do Batman, which is, yeah. there's some of those, but it's mostly like a standard flashback yeah. it's, it, or, or like a setup almost, you know? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I just, I want to see Christopher Nolan do smaller movies. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff that I liked from him. Don't get me wrong. I'm an interstellar fanboy. I will apologize for the scene about love holding the, the universe together <laughs> every day. Um, but... I I want to see him do smaller movies. I've watched a yeah. lot of video essays, as we've talked about, on YouTube. And one of my favorites that I didn't mention in that episode, I, because I can't remember who it is and I can't find it anymore, um, is this one about how, like, he he just – he's continued to follow this path of making larger and larger movies that, mm-hmm. I mean, is eventually going to lead to him – Losing relevance, right? Yeah. He, I don't know. He compares him to other directors that I don't know enough about film history to um, say right off the bat. But I think one of the other things that holds this movie back for me is a, a thing that is true about me personally, which is that there is a um, an art film um, from 
the late 1950s. It came out in 1958 or 1959. There is a film called Hiroshima Mon Amour. And Hiroshima Mon Amour is an art film that is like a 24 hours with these two people. One who is a Japanese man, one who is a French woman. And through it, through this love affair interaction that they have, it basically unravels the stories of their lives and the harms that they experienced during the war. And, and like, at the end of the movie, essentially, they turn to face each other, right? She says to him, your name is Hiroshima. And he says to her, your name is Nevers, the t- the French town that she's from. So yeah. it, it is this like, and it is a reconciling, a, a an attempt to understand the experience of living through the knowledge of the bombing of Hiroshima. And there are like actual, like, you know, video reel and, and newsreel of the bombing of Hiroshima in the film. And it's an important part of the narrative as well as like Nazi subjugation of anti-war protesters, which she is positioned as, um, I don't know. It's, it's just very, that movie profoundly changed how I experienced film. It was the first art film that I saw that, was a truly an art film, mm-hmm. right? Not like a not like a Quentin Tarantino art right. film. Like truly an art film told with a perspective about true events in a way that captivated my attention and changed how I think about the world and media and what is possible through storytelling and film. And interestingly enough, Hiroshima Mona Moore uses some of the same back and forth in time techniques it is a disjointed timeline you are talking to them in the present and you are talking to them 10 years ago and 20 years ago and they are telling you stories and they are these people are stand-ins for ideas and emotions more than they are you're supposed to connect with them as like characters or people right it is a it is an extended metaphor and conversation and tension so i don't know i think i like that in some ways I think set it up so that I expected more yeah. of this movie. I I expected more interrogation, more I don't know. There were also some other choices, like the way that the scoring, like the continuous scoring, also made it feel like a dressed up little story all the time. Oh, I don't know if you noticed that. I I didn't like it. It wasn't the for thing me. that I loved about <laughs> that specifically um, was the movie never really lets you sit in your seat and just be calm, right? True. And because the score is always doing something a little off kilter, right? Yeah. It's not always in your face. It is often that, but it is always doing something you don't expect. Yeah, and that's yeah. You're not supposed to feel comfortable in that movie. Yeah, I think I think that is true. I think you're not supposed to be all comfortable. And I, I say all of this, I actually think like it is not a film that I'm rushing to see again, but it's not one I'm telling people not to go see. Yeah, that's I do true. think that it's worth seeing, right? Like I do think that it's worth seeing. I think that it is a good film. I think that it asks interesting questions. I think that it tells a good story. I think that there's not a bad performance in the film. No. The acting is Emily impeccable. Blunt? What the fuck? truly and like robert downey jr notably for me that's the first role that i've seen him in 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 decades where i truly like 
kept forgetting that it was him, mm-hmm. right? Versus like the way Elizabeth said it was um, his first movie where he hasn't played himself, and he yeah. did well, kind that's of play he himself. Said. But, he hasn't really yeah. acted in ten years, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so you know, there's there's not there's not a bad moment in the film, yeah. but it just didn't leave me feeling, and I and I don't know that it's. What would a movie that left me with like a specific feeling about Oppenheimer be? Yeah. But I think that it it made me feel like meh. Yeah. So my hunch about what that movie might be, and you can tell me if you agree with this or not, at least I think this is what it'd be for me. It's maybe not a movie that is 1 million percent about Oppenheimer. (laughs) Um, So there's, I don't think that if you're trying to make a biography, I get it. This is not the point. Right. But I, I don't know if if in my opinion you have 50 percent of the movie which doesn't need to be there right could you have spent yeah. some of that time on parts of the story that you could have relegated to throwaway lines i'm thinking specifically mm. of when they're like building up los alamos and they're like we're gonna do with the people that live there you know yeah and like there's a whole native population that yeah, we what, as what a you... country kicked out. It's a, we do this yeah. all the time with native populations, right? Like yeah. it's it's like we're rife with this in our history. And then when when it's done, he's talking to President Truman. He's like, "What should we do with Los Alamos?" He's like, "Give it back to them," right? Yeah. And I and yeah. like those are the two lines about that entire thing. And I've seen plenty of content from people whose families, you know, lived there when this happened, mm-hmm. saying like, "Okay, but where are we in this story?" Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that, too. And I do think that that is like a really, really interesting interrogation here, right? In the scenes where he is being pressed on why he um, has changed his tune Mm -hmm. about the H-bomb and he is so against the H-bomb versus the A-bomb, right? The way that you know, the narrative frames it as, is like, uh, it's, it's pointing you towards the tension of what people think of him versus how he thinks of himself. Right. And nowhere in that line of questioning, is there an acknowledgement of like the immense harm that that testing did to large groups of Americans. Right. Because it's the Japanese people, right? Like that's another, another perspective I kept waiting to show up in some way. I agree. I actually don't didn't expect the interrogation of like the harm of 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 Japanese people to be part of this because it is so clearly the picture that Oppenheimer is painting both of himself and that other people are painting of him is one that is truly patriotic. Yeah, that's true. And rooted deeply in patriotism. I don't expect to see and 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 it is very clearly it is not that he is horrified by the harm that he has done to people it is that he is horrified that the thing that he made that he intended for them to either use or not use and once using it never do again that they did it twice right like and that is actually another kind of throwaway thing right Mm -hmm. I think a very pivotal moment and an important moment in understanding the Oppenheimer that Nolan is depicting, right, is when he very firmly reminds the general Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Mm -hmm. right? And his beef is that they did it twice, Mm -hmm. right? Not that they did it at all. Right. His beef. What a what a <laughs> childish way to talk about one of the most catastrophic and devastating right. periods of human history. All that to be said, I don't know. 
I certainly will think more and process more of it, but I just, I think that there is such a real story of consequence somewhere in that film. And it didn't feel like that was the, like, I didn't get the story of consequence. Yeah. I, yes. The thing I kept missing in that last third of the movie where they're really trying to get into his head about why he feels so bad, right? Was like, it doesn't feel like guilt, right? It doesn't. And like, that's what I was expecting to see, right? And that's, from what I understand, culturally before watching this movie, Oppenheimer to have felt, right? Um, I have not read a biography of Oppenheimer. I have not. I have not gone directly to the source to know these things. Maybe Nolan actually knows that this is the thing he was upset about. He was more upset about the people involved, right, than yeah. he was anything else. Um, but I don't know. It was just – it was know. a strange way to spend the last hour of a movie that I was already tired of being in. It was too long. Yeah. <laughs> it was too long. Again, I actually think it's a good movie and technically very excellent. It's just – I don't know. I think it was a good movie. I think I didn't yeah. like it. Yeah. I don't like I think those two <laughs> things are different. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> like a truly like like from a from a critical standpoint, like if I was to be a movie critic about mm-hmm. it, I would have less critical things to say. Did AC me personally, did I like it? No. Yeah, that's fair. And then I told you I was gonna tell you this. I have not seen Barbie because I thought Jonathan didn't want to watch it because he very loudly said he didn't want to watch it. And then <laughs> This weekend was like, what are you talking about? We, I want to go see that movie. Um, so we're going to see Barbie. And I think AC oh and I are going to talk about it on an episode next season. That's actually three Here's episodes the we thing. have planned. Okay. <laughs> we might have to do an emergency summer. AC screams about Barbie into the microphone. Although I do want to see it again before he scream about it into the microphone. <laughs> I got so close to the mic. I have to not do that when I get so excited. You can get close to the mic. Um, it's actually better. <laughs> I just... I can't believe that Greta Gerwig made that movie just for me. And I know that I'm not the only person to express that feeling, but I also, Matt, I feel like this is a funny moment to tell you is like, okay, obviously I'm a Greta Gerwig guy, mm-hmm. but I'm also a Christopher Nolan guy. And when I was talking to some coworkers about um, whether or not I was going to see Oppenheimer and like Christopher Nolan, I was like, listen, the thing is that if I was a, like a straight man, like I would be the most annoying man on the planet. The things that I like the most are like Christopher Nolan movies and <laughs> comics and I have really pretentious opinions about food and drinks. Like I would be the worst hipster, you know, are you gonna tell me but about thankfully, the wire? <laughs> okay. Listen, I know, <laughs> but I would like to talk to you about the Sopranos actually. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, that's 20 minutes about Oppenheimer. 20 minutes about Oppenheimer, <laughs> and I got more content for you, too. Uh, so AC and I are tossing around this idea of uh, eventually doing a real segment where we tell you about the things we've been texting each other about. LOL. But uh, the latest thing that I've been texting them about is uh, seasons basically three and four and the beginning of five of Game Changer on Dropout. Once again, we talk about Brendan Lee Mulligan on this show. <laughs> Great website. Great website. Incredible content. So I was sick a couple weekends ago. And I just like was like, you know what? This is a great time. I am just going to power through season three of Game Changer because I wasn't mm-hmm. sure I was going to enjoy it because it was like the Zoom season, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm just going to do it all today. Mm-hmm. I am so happy that I did that. Mm-hmm. And then season four, when they're back on set, it just, it's perfection. And it's they like so good. go so nuts. 
so it's so nuts. good. I think okay. I I would like to know. Do you have a favorite moment from season four? Yeah. So in season three, and and I mentioned this one to you in text, but in season three, they're doing this. Um, was it Secret Santa? I think. What are they doing? Uh, uh, when Grant O'Brien has to uh-huh. tweet at a porn star. And be like, hey, I had a problem with your OnlyFans, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think it's a Secret Santa episode, which basically means he stole a what he thought was a prize and it turned out to be like a punishment or something like that. Yeah. And he tweets at this guy, Ty Mitchell, who's just somebody that he watches. <laughs> um, and Ty responds like, oh, hey, baby, like DM me and we'll get it figured out <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> and of course, his post has like all his like college humor fans like – you know, liking and replying to it and shit. Yeah. And uh, to spoil a season four episode, they are there. I, again, I don't remember the details. I just remember they bring Ty Mitchell onto the show to yeah. like do a little tiny segment um, called sex toy or dog toy where they have yes, to decide. Sex toy or dog toy, yeah, yeah. Where they have to decide like, you know what this object is. And basically the joke is that Ty always thinks it's a sex toy, yeah. um. <laughs> uh, which is very funny because some of them are, very obviously dog toys (laughs) but they just like one-up themselves in like who they bring on the show and what they do for people there's a whole episode i don't want to spoil that is all focused on jess that made me weep so sweet okay i have many favorite moments there is so much i think like the official cast recording is such a good episode oh my god don't cry is such a good episode yeah. like like there there's so much in this show that is remarkable but honestly one of the funniest things i like ever is in the very first episode of season four when they're back and they're mm-hmm. it, the vibes are impeccable izzy lou brennan a perfect storm there are many of my favorite that is one of the funniest episodes of all time sam says oh my it God. is up there yes. one of the funniest episodes of all time uh izzy's joke about buttholes <laughs> and, and she's like buttholes everywhere and sam is like can you be more specific and brennan screams you heard the woman <laughs> Like she they're said suggesting, buttholes. they're <laughs> suggesting basically VFX for the episode, and then they've like put cartoon buttholes all over the screen, everywhere, and then different buttholes, and yeah. then more buttholes, and then yeah. a Steven Steven Soderbergh joke yeah. about buttholes. Anyway, yeah. um, that's not my favorite moment. I think the funniest thing, and I just know because I like know follow these people mm-hmm. online, right? Like when. When the prompt is, Sam says, do something that will upset a producer. (laughs) And Brennan walks out from behind the podium and wet coughs loudly at everyone. And this is, like, 2021. Right. This is, like, pandemic. Like, he... (laughs) Sam was like, I heard a gasp from the crew. (laughs) And it's like, yes, Brennan did something shocking. And also, that's so funny. (laughs) Sam says, like, I genuinely feel a little bit upset right now. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, he did that because he knew it would upset you. And you said upset a producer. So he said, okay. Or... The bird. I'll name. I'll name every bird. <laughs> like, like, when they are trolling Brennan, that's in yeah. season five. Anyway, the show really in season four and five is it's it's so funny. Seasons one through three, and in four and five, they they have found their stride. Oh yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot over text about the Survivor episode. 
<laughs> which if you are listening to this show you have just heard our survivor episode and i have to tell you guys ac has been watching a lot more survivor so that episode so fucking worked. since then um and i also think that it's so funny that one of the things that i texted you was like so in the survivor episodes of game changer lou does a hilarious bit where he is like vocalizing the theme song of survivor and like it was a funny bit when i first watched the episodes of right. game changer before i watched survivor and then after one of the things that i texted matt was that like now after watching survivor that is one of the funniest things <laughs> i have ever seen on television i is lou vocalizing that whole like two-parter is like some of my favorite game changer if anyone has a loop-de-loop and would like to play it oh now would be the God. time to do so what is a loop-de-loop? I don't know, but I'm imagining This is a fucking loop-de-loop. Oh, my God. Do you think I fuck around? <laughs> this is an immunity loop-de-loop. Any votes cast for Brennan will not count. Oh, my God. Wow. You think I'm going to fucking roll over? Wow. <laughs> you look me in the eyes, Beardsley, and say, wow. Brennan, I think it's your fucking time. Hey. It'll be a cold day in hell. When I go out like a fucking chump. The reason I posted on threads, you think I'm going to fucking roll over? <laughs> Look me in the <laughs> eyes, Beardsley. Because like that, like, just like is to repeat in my brain all yeah. the time. You look me in yeah. the eyes, Beardsley. Oh, my God. And, like, I will try not to uh, keep that part in the show. I'll hopefully put the actual clip there of Brendan being fucking hysterical. Anyway, that's Game Changer. You should watch it. Yeah. There's a really great episode in season five. That was my introduction to the show, actually, which was the Escape Room episode. Oh, the Escape Room episode is so good. The Escape Room episode is good on its own, and then it's just better once you, like, know them. <laughs> like, yeah. These personalities. Like, I think this is, this is like, a very I, – I, here's a segue for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to give it to you here. One of the things that I have loved the most about watching Game Changer is that, aside from Strange New Worlds, which we're going to talk about, the dropout – extended universe right formerly college humor now dropout is like the first fandom that i have fallen headlong into in a long time that is a new fandom for me entirely Mm -hmm. like completely new i was i mean obviously on the internet i was a youtube person like there there i was primed to be in interested in this kind of content and actually really going way back to my roots of uh being a whose line is it anyway guy Mm -hmm. um (laughs) but now it feels harder and harder for things to fully grab me in this way and Mm -hmm. this maybe seems ironic for someone who has a show um where they talk about stuff that they can't stop talking (laughs) anyway so let's talk about the other show that i've fallen headlong into yeah let's do that um so (laughs) i just to to get into star trek the star trek of it all did you consume any star trek in like a meaningful way before strange new worlds oh yes i'm a long time trek person okay so you're like like, i have i have watched tng voyager voyager is my favorite deep space nine I've watched the original. I, w- I used to watch Star Trek with my dad. As I was going to. I was going to ask. Do I remember that your dad is a Star Trek guy? Yes. Yeah. And um, then I watched Discovery. I I actually have not watched the last season of Discovery, but I read the synopsis because right. I wanted to start watching Strange New Worlds, and I will go back and watch the final season of Discovery. Um, but it was just at a time when I had canceled my Paramount Plus subscription because right. I was trying to do away with that. And then I was like, no, it's worth it again. Yeah. <laughs> so at this point, I would cancel other things before that. Yeah. So. I have never been a Star Trek guy. Oh, interesting. You know pretty well that I was very much a Star Wars guy. 
Um, not that it's like a competition, but also my like extremely nerdy one is I'm a big Stargate fan, right? Yeah. You absolutely know that. And we've watched Stargate together uh, because I pushed for it many times. I don't know. That was just like a thing that I got to in high school because my friend Drew was also obsessed with it. And so we watched it together and his dad was into it. So whenever I was there, we would, I don't know, watch the new episode. And, but Star Trek was just like never a thing for me. It's not that I disliked it. Like, TNG would be on like Spike TV when I was growing yeah. up, you know, and like I would catch an episode here or there. My dad, um, growing up, was a big original series and then TNG fan. He like had a party with his friends the night that TNG, you know, came mm. on TV for the first time. Wow! Like, but he never like we never watched it together, right? The stuff we watched yeah. together was Star Wars. Um, yeah, was movies with cars in them because that's like his current thing. classic dad movie genre yeah exactly <laughs> um, and i oh to be fair he also loved lord of the rings so that was a big deal sure. for he and i you know yeah when those came out my dad also i went to see the first lord of the rings movie with my dad and yeah. it was a big deal because i was not yet 13 mm. and it was rated pg-13 my dad took me to see it oh really my first like i am personally interested in this were the jj abrams movies mm. and like those are fun movies, They're right? Great movies. I really enjoy them. Beyond is fine, but like, also, I would like to hold the moment of uh, me Star Trek movies, great movie. J.J. Abrams Star Trek, great movies. Oppenheimer, I didn't like it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think of myself as an intellectual. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, like, I enjoyed those movies. I was not like obsessed with them, right? Sure. Um, I will watch them if they're on TV. My husband is a big Zoe Saldana fan. So, you know, like we basically are required to watch it whenever it's on, you know, (laughs) but like, I don't know. I like a couple years ago, I don't remember what happened. I think I was talking in discord with some friends and they were talking about Star Trek. And it's, I think it's another one of those things where I was getting disillusioned with Star Wars. And I was like, I need Mm. something like, I don't know what I want to watch. I'm going to pick something. And I decided I was going to watch TNG. Because if I was going to get into Star Trek, that felt like the way to do it. It was something I was familiar with. Yeah. I already knew I didn't like the original series. I'm sorry. That's okay. But, like, I already knew it wasn't going to work for me. So I was like, I'm going to watch this. Watching that show took me a year. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, it's an old-style TV show. There's 22-something episodes a season, right? Like There's filler episodes. Yeah. It's dense. Yeah. And, like, I'm not a person who skips a lot. You know, yeah. like Star Trek famously, you can kind of just pick up an episode and watch. Correct. And that's like yes. one of the benefits of it. But like, that's not me. That's not my life. Yes. It's a it's a monster of the week formula. Yeah. So it's very much intended for a casual viewer in syndication to be able to pick up on it. Yeah, exactly. So I just, I watched it really slowly and was having a good time. And my plan after that was to start Deep Space Nine, which I have done. I haven't gotten through season one. It's kind of a okay. slog right now. But it- you know, it's really good. Though. I know that people love D Space Nine, and I just have to get through season one. That was the situation yeah. with Next Generation as well. Sure, yeah. But as I was watching this, people kept kept talking about Strange New Worlds. Everyone was mm-hmm. like, "Oh my god, this is the closest thing to TNG in like years." Yeah. This is the Planet of the Week format, like yep. back in its like original incarnation, just like updated yep. for our times. And like people were so hype about it, and I was like you know what? Maybe I'll watch that before I watch DS9. And there was only 10 episodes, right? So There's only 10 episodes. <laughs> I literally, for like two full seasons of watching TNG, I had Strange New Worlds like pinned to my up next on the Apple TV, like ready to go. And I was like yeah. finishing TNG so that I could watch Strange New Worlds. Yeah. Right? Uh, oh, actually, 
go back a bit, the reason I started this whole project was because Picard looked interesting. Oh, sure. At this point, I'm like, I'll get to it eventually. I hear it's not super great, but like, I'll watch it, you know? Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but it's on my list. AC, I powered through the first season of Strange New Worlds in like four days. Yeah. And that was... Easy. Ten episodes, yeah. two days, clear it. Yeah. And like, that was longer than it really needed to take. Sure. So what I want to do for our listeners is like pitch this show to them. Yeah. I'm going to give you as quick of a pitch as I can and then get into a little bit more detail. So what is Star Trek Strange New Worlds? Technically, it is a prequel to Star Trek, the original series, right? Correct. So it's a show that's full of classic characters, um, full of some characters that maybe didn't have as big roles in the original series that are more fleshed out or more explored here. And then there's also new characters. Um, And I think the show is made in its characters, right? In the way that I enjoy Lost because of the people that you are watching, not necessarily like the plot week to week, right? And that's kind of why I'm a Lost apologist. Yeah. Like this show is doing character first stuff and like also delivering really good weekly narratives, right? Yeah. So these are characters, um, the ones that, you know, were there all the time, were, you know, Spock, you run into Kirk every once in a while, right? He's he's kind of a recurring character. But then you have characters like uh, Captain Pike, um, who was the, you know, the captain of the Enterprise at this time. You have uh, number one, Una Chin Riley, right? Um, who, mm-hmm. this is the first time apparently in like film or TV that she's ever been given a name. Yeah. You have uh, Nurse Chapel, have Dr. Mbanga. All of these characters existed in the original series to some extent, some more than others, right? But they're being fleshed out in a way in this show that they weren't before. You have yeah. new characters like Ortega and Hemmer and La'an. I love all three of them. <laughs> um, and the show is just like delivering character moments every fucking episode that just endear you to these people. I rewatched the yeah. first five episodes today. I didn't watch them all, but I like kind of scrolled through them just to like yeah. get a sense of like the beginning of the show. Yeah. And they all get like at the very least like a 30 second moment where like you really feel their emotions, right? Yeah. Just in the first two episodes. I, I I would say maybe even in just the first episode. Mm-hmm. The premise of the first episode does a lot to root the characters in place so that you understand who they are jumping mm-hmm. in quickly. Um, and I think that, like, that is to the show's credit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think also that the show, specifically because it does the planet of the week thing, is like upending kind of not even a trend just like a way of being in television that prestige tv brought us right yeah and doing the the planet of the week thing allows us to see those characters in different ways right when you're in that sort of overarching story mode and you're having to continue and continue on the plot people almost even though the plot moves the people get stagnant sometimes does it make sense right and this lets them interact in different ways every hour of television yeah so my my favorite uh, Star Trek series is Voyager, which is in many ways a like um, smashing together. It tries Voyager more than other Star Trek uh, shows, in my opinion, um, tries to do both, mm. tries to do both a long term, like clear narrative storytelling, clear narrative storytelling, which is that the Star Trek Voyager um was patrolling the D sector of space, the the far reaches of space mm-hmm. when I think it's the D sector. They're, they are they are far from sector mm-hmm. A and their warp drive fails and they have to be they're traveling back to the A sector manually basically 
and it is going to take them longer than their lives to mm-hmm. get home right is the idea and they they can't they're so far from any subspace relay that they can't get a message back like all of this kind of stuff they're they're beyond far beyond the edge of federation space and so um there are many planet of the week type episodes where they're encountering things far beyond the edge of federation space right that are like new but there is also a long narrative of people are isolated on this ship they now live on this ship in a way that they have not lived on the ship before right they live there a hundred percent of the time there's no docking there's no parking the ship and going, you know, going off on planet or whatever. There are away missions, right? But they are fewer and farther between and perhaps more dangerous and, like, just different, right? And so there's, like, a lot of, like, the show is, like, reconciling that experience, right? And then Discovery, which is my other favorite, mm-hmm. does the opposite and it is only narrative, right? right? Like, there's a little bit of Planet of the Week in Discovery, but it is primarily one story told over the course of many. Yeah, and the people that I know that, or the people I've heard of that don't like what's called New Trek, basically, by the fans, right, right often criticize Discovery for that reason. And I'm not talking yeah. about, like, racist asshole fans. I'm talking about sure. just <laughs> fans that are normal and don't right. like New Trek, right. right? I think the thing is, like, I love Discovery because I loved that take on it. And I, too, loved the J.J. Abrams movies. And I, like, I really, really enjoyed the storytelling that Discovery did. And I, like, I mean, uh, you can't make a show with Michelle Yeoh in it and have me not <laughs> like it at this point. Like, yeah. I love Michelle Yeoh and I want to watch everything that she's right. in. So I I enjoyed it a, a lot. But I will also say that, like, watching Strange New Worlds, the first things that I noticed were that it brought back that monster of the week format. And this is, like, mm-hmm. seeing people talk positively about it online but not seeing a lot of chatter about it. And I just, I'm thrilled. I agree with that assessment that, mm-hmm. like, this is the return of Monster of the Week, and it's really fun, mm-hmm. and it makes it easy. Um, and perhaps here's a, a strong, you know, selling point. My partner is not a Trek person. Mm-hmm. Um, has watched a few episodes with me here and there. I've tried to get her to watch <laughs> Next Generation with me, and you know what? It. I admit, if you are not a sci-fi geek, it is a hard sell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some of the older stuff, especially strictly, not because it's not good strictly because of like what our modern understandings of like what television should look and feel like are but i was watching an episode and i fell asleep on the couch and she came out into the living room with the intention of sitting down and changing the tv to something else and actually just got fully sucked into the episode that i was watching and then (laughs) woke me up and asked me if we could start it over again amazing so that she could watch it from the beginning and now we have finished season one together so i've i've watched season one three times in full in the last week and a half that's amazing that's amazing (laughs) so i do want to say one thing it's actually a a positive the show that I wanted to call out in the pitch for this anyway is that you and I have talked a lot about like the history of Trek and like how this show relates to others. Technically yeah. the show is even a spin-off of Discovery while also being a prequel to the original series, right? Like mm-hmm. none of that matters. Yeah. Right? If you have never watched Star Trek before, this is the way to get into Star Trek. You need no knowledge and it it's it's simply setting you down into the setting and saying we'll tell you everything you need yeah. to know. I have never seen Discovery. And I don't really understand how it's a thing. I understand that there was like a season where all these characters were in it and they were kind of 
working with the Discovery crew and yeah. whatever. And then something <laughs> happened and it yeah. birthed this show, right? Yeah. And like, I don't need to know what that is. The show in the first episode, like, kind of hints at, hey, this thing happened with the Discovery and it caused this situation right. that we're dealing with. Right. And that's all I need to know, right? All I need to know yeah. is that this happened before the original series and that's why Spock is here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and like, that is an incredible setup. And it's, uh, if it, does or does not make you go watch more Star Trek after it, that's also fine. Like, if you just want to yeah. watch this show, that's all you need to do. Then it's a good show. Yeah. It is worth just watching this show. It's worth just show. watching the show. <laughs> we'll say, if you are the kind of person that's worried about, like, hey, I don't know, like, Star Trek kind of feels a little old. I really do like the sort of modern trappings of television. This show's Enterprise is fucking beautiful, and the way it is shot does not look like any other Star Trek show. Yeah. It is, and this is actually something they say, and they mean it slightly differently, but it is it's it's filmed like a prestige tv show it's a it's a film every episode yeah. but it doesn't present itself in the same way like the stories are not prestige tv style stories they're again that sort of planet of the week monster of the week thing we did saying i literally was watching star trek ready room on youtube before you got on the call and uh jonathan frakes who directed a recent episode uh, Riker yeah. from tng was saying that like they treat it as a, a new film every episode to kind of let the directors do what they want to do, but also to say like, hey, this one can be horror. Hey, yeah. this one can be a, there was a recent episode that was a very political military thriller, which was new for me and the show and was incredible, right? Yeah, like, it was really yeah. good. So there's there's good stuff happening in the show and like I don't know you'll find something that's this worth for you. There's a straight up comedy episode recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and I think it it's also worth like, you know, some people's come have had had complaints with Discovery, and I think like including not just the racist fans, mm -hmm. right? Certainly, there was much discourse about Discovery. And the way, like, the racist and homophobic fans felt about the inclusion and introduction of people who were clearly queer, who were clearly mm -hmm. people of color, and putting those people at the forefront mm -hmm. of Starfleet and the narratives that we were hearing. But I also think that there was some fairness in, like, you know, sometimes it was a little ham-fisted right. in that it's, like, clearly got a perspective. Now, I... Won't pretend that Strange New Worlds doesn't have its little moments of hand-fisted, mm -hmm. hand-fistedness, <laughs> because it certainly does. But it feels like those moments are more ham-fisted in the way that I am used to Star Trek being, which is, like, that they're ham-fisted in, like, a political or, like, socio-philosophical way, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're positing some bigger question about the universe, but... It also feels more understated in the other parts of the story mm. in terms of like that inclusion of those kinds of stories as a normal part of the story, right. not like a, we're trying to make a point by including these people here. Right. There, so there's a there's a character um, in Strange New Worlds, I'm thinking specifically Ortega, right? And they do this thing in the first season where they're like, we haven't really figured out what we think about Ortega yet, right? Um, yeah. And Ortega is... She's a, a Latina, you know, and, and like the actress um, has talks, you know, specifically about like gender and queerness and stuff like that. But like, yeah. I kept looking for, I was like, I don't know, what are this person's pronouns? You know, like, I'm just like curious, yeah. right? And the show is not like out here being like, my pronouns are they, them. My pronouns are right. he, him. It's not doing that. It's just right. referring to people and you assume that everyone's got it right. And I will say... <laughs> 
They do introduce a non-binary. Oh, we're gonna talk about them. <laughs> who has a whole monologue about being non-binary? Yes. Uh, the best episode of season one for what? It's oh worth. my god! Um, oh my god! But Ortega is, you know, is there and like I don't know. She like you look at her, you're like that looks like a lesbian. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like you, that's she. She gives yeah. off s- some lesbian vibes. Um, She's got big dyke energy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I just. I loved them entering her and then just like them being like, we're going to let Matt sit with that information, you know, and yeah. like not answer my question for a while. Yeah. And then and there's no need to. And yeah. then also like later there's an episode where they're in, an, you know, in an imagined scenario, mm-hmm. not imagined. That's not the right word. A projected right. scenario, you know, and she's just like a knight just yeah. like as a matter of and they call her sir adya like, yeah yeah chill like yeah know? exactly there's there, the way and there's no confusion do, about it yeah you know? yeah exactly that's the thing is there's no confusion in any situation so while og star trek right was definitely progressive for its time but has its problems yeah. right very famously yeah. has its problems this show is not like trying some to, very anti-semitic problems yeah. this show is not trying to like recreate those for canon or something like that right it's just and it's not even trying to comment on it it's like look we can be a science fiction show and have all of those concerns about canon and whatnot and also just like <laughs> treat humans like humans and like bring people to the show you've never seen before right yeah and i think it's like every time it happens it's like i get excited right yeah i have a episode i want to talk about later where you know there there's a there's a strong component in the first season and then the beginning of the second season with regards to race and like metaphors around race and the first person to talk about it and relate it to race is a black woman mm-hmm. and i was like it's just a show that like does that and you like yeah. no other tv show would do that they yeah. it's not that they would like intentionally fuck it up they just like wouldn't think that hard about it yeah you know what i mean and like I don't know. Every time I'm watching it, it's not like beating you over the head with a message. It's just like right. subtly doing the correct things every now and again. Yes, 100%. 100%. Man, you know what? That's a g- great reason that I just love Dropout.tv. <laughs> <laughs> as well as Strange New World. Yeah. But yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to quick set up the show for people, and then we can get into a few episodes that I want to okay. talk about. So the setup for the show, like I said, happens in Star Trek Discovery, show I've not seen, show AC has seen. I have seen, yes. Like I said, I understand there's an entire season that basically acts as a backdoor pilot for Strange New World. Is that correct? Yeah. Where there's like recurring characters that are Enterprise characters. Yes. And then the characters that we're seeing largely from the original series, it's a prequel to that show. And like I said, Captain Pike former captain if you're talking about like the kirk era right mm-hmm, is the captain mm-hmm, of the enterprise again i mostly didn't even look that up because i want you to understand that you can enjoy the show without like having to do that the interesting thing that has happened is that at the beginning of the show it, it tells you and i assume that this was in a discovery scene that i haven't seen um that pike knows that he is going to have some terrible accident 10 years from the beginning of this show. Yeah. He knows he saves a bunch of children from, from some disaster and it like horribly disfigures him and basically leaves him, you know, you know, needing to be cared for at all times, unable to, you know, do his duties. And he's like basically facing that future every day, um, knowing that's going to happen 10 years from now. And the first time we see Pike, he's like in this beautiful cabin in the middle of the mountains. And he has this, 
really long hair and like beard that is out of control, but also I'm extremely attracted to him the entire time. He's like, it's giving mountain man. Yeah, he's like riding horses and shit. Um, mm-hmm. But the, his whole vibe in this moment is like, I'm like hot in a different way, but actually this is my grubby look and I'm that way because I don't want to go back to the enterprise because I'm scared. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> I actually, I actually really love this, ex- that exchange between him and the Admiral in that, yeah. in that early moment where um, what Pike says to the Admiral is um, you don't want me anywhere near that ship. And what the Admiral says is you have us confused. Yeah, oh my God. I, that line is incredible. And that's so, <laughs> Mwah, just his. <laughs> yeah. I want her crewed up and ready to fly by 1800. Send someone else. You don't want me in command of that ship. You're getting us confused. You don't want you in command. What a good introduction. That is that is in the first five minutes of dialogue of mm-hmm. this show and tells you and sets you up for, yes, it is going to be quippy. Yes, it is going to mm-hmm. be a little bit predictable. But yes, it is going to check all of the boxes for you if you are a person who likes a formulaic, if a little cheeky, like, setup in your dialogue like I do that mm-hmm. feels like it's not... There is some of the writing in the show that is, like, good writing. Mm -hmm. Like, truly good writing. But not all of it has to be, like, that tier, right? It's not all S tier, Mm -hmm. but it is all A tier. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) I just want to say Anson Mount is a beautiful man. And it's, like, a significant part of the reason that I watched this show. (laughs) You know what? Yeah. Everyone actually on the cast is super hot. Oh, they're all super hot. (laughs) But before I watched the show, Anson Mount was the only one I could, like, form in my head. Also, two things that I found out while researching this episode. He played Black Bolt in the MCU. What? So, this the terrible show in Humans, he was there. But also, he was in Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. Oh. Well, you named the two Marvel properties that I haven't seen. Oh, okay, so... (laughs) Spoilers for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. It's the multiverse. They go to another world where there's a bunch of like uh, they go to they go to another you know universe where there's a bunch of like alternate universe heroes. And one of them, yes. instead of the Avengers, they have the Illuminati. It's a reference to the comics. And Black Bolt is one of the Illuminati. Okay. Okay. And it was a funny thing because he got pulled into the movies after he was in this terrible show. No one watched that get canceled after two episodes. Okay. Also, okay. you ready for this? He yeah. stars opposite of Britney Spears in the movie Crossroads. Wait. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is this why? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my, oh my God. Okay. All right. So the thing is, is that now that you've said that, uh uh-huh. Yeah. Uh Actually, now I realize I thought that he just looked familiar to me because he looks like a guy who would look familiar. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Crossroads. Crossroads. (laughs) Wow. You mentioned the scene with the Admiral, right? So the Admiral comes to like get him and he's like trying to get him back on the Enterprise. He basically gives him an order that needs to be back on the Enterprise. They're going to go save Unichin Riley, number one, because she has decided that downtime is not for her and gotten mm-hmm. captured on this planet mm-hmm. doesn't matter why but the number one thing i thought was like it's like 30 seconds between the moment where he's looking all scruffy it's like mid-morning he's talking to the admiral on like <laughs> you know with his horse next to him and then the admiral's like by 1800 hours you need to be on that ship and you know out of the docks or whatever 
And this yeah. man has packed up his things, has boarded his horse, has gotten to the Enterprise, and gotten a perfect haircut and shave. Yeah. And is like... It's the future, Matt. Anything is possible. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I just... The whole time I'm like, how did this man get like a fade between now and then? The pilot is so interesting. If you know anything about Star Trek, you may have known the phrase, the prime directive. It, I, there's probably words out there. This is me not being a, a Star Trek super nerd, but it basically says that like, you can't interfere with a, with a civilization. <laughs> I don't know. That's the prime directive. That's a rough approximation. Yeah. Of the prime directive. There's probably correct. words out there, but what are they calling it in the first episode? Like general order, general order one. Yeah. General order one. And the, the point is that like, this is early enough that the prime directive hasn't been, Yes. Like, you know, solidified. And what is fucking hysterical is that the crew of this Enterprise is the reason that General Order 1 becomes the prime directive, which is yeah. the thing that, like, <laughs> underwrites every other Star Trek show. Uh, I think that, I thought that was a very, a very funny little touch. They call it General Order 1 in Discovery, I believe. Which makes sense for the time. Honestly, the most important thing to know about the Prime Directive is it is a directive of non-interference um, that is the fundamental premise of what these people should be doing in space, except that the premise of the show is just all of the reasons why they never pay attention to the Prime Directive. Mm -hmm. They bring it up. They say, but that would violate the Prime Directive. And then they choose to do it anyway, almost every time, almost without fail. Yeah, literally, Pike says in this episode, screw General Order 1. Those are words he <laughs> yeah. says. And, like, yes, it's the premise that underwrites, like, many other episodes, but it's also, like, the funniest little joke in Star Wars that, like, the prime directive is never to interfere, and every captain that you follow on the show of Star Trek has a thing about wanting to help and, like, help people because that's what the Federation does, right. and so they choose to interfere pretty much all the time. There's a whole plot line that lasts a couple seasons in The Next Generation where, like, Picard is potentially going to be put on trial for violating Prime Directive, and then it does happen, right? Like, a yeah. Star Trek loves a trial episode. We're going to talk oh, about yes. one today. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I don't know. The pilot's the first episode I want to talk about, and I just kind of want to talk about things I love in this episode. So the yeah. premise of this episode beyond like getting on the ship and all that is that they have basically accidentally through the whole thing with the discovery and some wormhole that I don't really know what it's for have like accidentally <laughs> made this planet aware, right. Of warp technology and the existence yeah. of, of alien planets, right. This society is like roughly at like our level of societal progression. Right. Yes. Yeah. And like, Still pre-warp, but what they say is that they're one year from having warp technology. Right. And, like, it's, it, like, they basically just got access to warp technology too early. And so the first thing that yeah. they've done with it is build a bomb, right, to deal mm -hmm. with some, like, a civil war, essentially, on the planet. Yes. Which is very, this is, like, a very classic Star Trek setup, I just have to say. Yes. It's very, it's giving New Earth. Yeah. It's giving, they've done this this exact kind of episode. I mean, there's, there's famously one where um, they, like, go back in time yeah. to, like, Earth, like, 1990s or whatever, and it's chaos, you know? I mean, the Star Trek uh, 4, isn't that also a time travel back to... There are, there's many, many time travel stories. So, yes. <laughs> I'm like, um, uh, the voyage oh, home. Yeah, it's like 1986 yeah, San Francisco. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's the Save yeah, the Whales That's what movie. I was thinking yeah. of. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of, yeah. And that's not the only time that they oh, go yeah. back in time to Earth or to New Earth or to a planet that is a, much akin to Earth. Humanoids doing the same stuff. One of my favorite bits happens because they have to, like, steal, like, uniforms so they can sneak into this place. Yeah. And they send <laughs> the people that they have stolen the uniforms from back to the Enterprise, like, sedated. Um, yeah. And one of the guys, like, wakes up and starts running around the ship. And Nurse Chapel chasing this man through the ship is like for some reason one of the most hysterical things to me yeah and then like uhura immediately gets to show off her like prowess right as a communicator right um as just like a general like expert of like alien knowledge because she chats up this guy on the turbo lift about like the local sport on his planet and he's like you know what that is you know the teams you know the history and and she like gets him talking about it because she knows when they get off the turbo lift like it's gonna get taken care of and she can distract them long enough and then they get off the turbo lift and chapel is like right there and just like sedates him immediately and he falls on the ground and she goes got him <laughs> Nurse Chapel. Honestly, there isn't a character on this show that I don't love. I will right. say Hemmer is the one who took me the longest to warm up to. Mm-hmm. But by the end, I mean Hemmer had my whole heart. Immediately. Yeah. It's such a fun introduction to like what you will get to expect from Nurse Chapel's character, too. Right. The like chaos joy vibes um, yeah. that she brings. Yeah, in this I don't have the second episode written down, but in the second episode, uh she is like do they, what do they call them? Hyposprays, right? Yeah. Uh, she's like giving that to all the people that are about to go on this away mission. And they're all kind of like wincing because she didn't tell them it was going to hurt. And she's like, I've had people run from me. And then I forget exactly what she says, but she makes like a little flirty, quippy thing to Spock, who we know yeah. is engaged to be married at this point. Yes. And he also because he's Spock, he's not picking up on like the hint. Right. Yeah. Um, and Uhura gives like she's hilarious uh, to be fair like yeah. chapel is really funny in this moment <laughs> yeah. and like it's showing off those two characters but uhura just like looks at them and makes a face and she immediately clocks what's going on between spock she's and chapel always <laughs> staring at them and it's so cute to me actually yeah i don't know that to me is i don't know there's i guess there's one more moment in the pilot there i forget exactly what's happening they're on the bridge um, and they're talking about like something that's happening. I don't know if they're about to take off or whatever, but Uhura just like is like grinning and she goes, cool. <laughs> and, yeah. Like... Yeah. One thing I remarked that I really like about uh, to, to my partner um, that I really, really like about Uhura's character, um, and, and this is through the series, mm-hmm. right? Um, is we have not often gotten a perspective of someone who is new to working in space Mm -hmm. in a way where it's not like, oh, they're the newbie, they're going to die, right? Right. It's like she's new and you get to – one of the things you get to experience along with her character is like her actually coming to terms with the enormity of space, the coolness, like Mm -hmm. the cool factor of like you work in space, right? You good? Yeah, I'm standing on the surface of a comet. Obviously, like, one of the big plot lines in season one for Uhura is her finding her place in Starfleet. The whole second episode is, like, dedicated to this idea that she's not sure if she wants to be there and she's trying to find a place for herself, right? Yeah, and and that continues even until the last episode of season one, right? She is saying that she's planning to go back home, Mm -hmm. right? And so, like, the... But getting to see, like, the, that moment of her being, like, cool. Yeah. Or, like, when they, in episode 
two when they go to the asteroid Mm -hmm. and she steps onto the asteroid and she's just like fully aware that Mm -hmm. she is in space by herself for the first time. Mm -hmm. Not by herself. She's with her crew. Right. right? But like that she is in NBD just experiencing the vastness of space with my own human eyes. Right. (laughs) Like she's also experiencing that danger for the first time. Right. Cause that's when Sam Kirk, like his heart stops because it doesn't matter. But like she's realizing like, Oh, we could die here. We can't get back to the enterprise. Right. Yeah. And it's just, it's really cool to get to see that and to have that be a recurring character, not a one-off character, a someone who has like reverence and like joy for, the reason that so many of us like the show, yeah. right? Which is imagining a world where we could travel to space. Yeah. I also love what they, at this point, we're just talking about episode two, but um, the, I love what they do with her. And this was actually the example that I had in my head when we talked about how quickly the show endears you to people. She yeah. um, kind of gets hazed a little bit to like show up to this dinner at Pike's, you know, <laughs> quarters in like dress uniform. You said it was formal. Actually, what I said was you might want to wear your dress uniform. Are you kidding? This is your idea of a practical joke. General Ortegas, Cadet Uhura, welcome. <laughs> dress uniform, huh? But Grab then she drink, shows up, she's really uncomfortable, but she starts to, like, get used to this crew, right? And yeah. Pike asks her, like, where she sees herself in 10 years, and that's when she kind of says, I don't know that I want to be in Starfleet. She talks yeah. about why she gets into Starfleet and tells this really deeply traumatic, but also, like, very... I don't know, well-delivered and, like, short, concise story that gets you, like, interested in her as a person, Mm -hmm. right? And she's talking about, you know, how she grew up in Kenya and and all this stuff and then – and her family and these things. And those things are end up – at the end of the episode, those was what end up saving the day. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, like th- those are the tools, the songs that she knew when she was a kid that her mother sang to her end up being yeah. the things that help her figure out the answer to this, you know, translation problem that she's got with this alien device. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. It's it's a very cool. She's a very cool character. She's a character that is a joy to watch and that I would die for as I would die for anyone. Um, I mean, Celia was good. Also speaking of extremely hot, like just yeah. like beautiful, yeah. beautiful person. What what other episodes did you want to talk about? So I want to talk you about episode saved? seven, the serene Ooh. squall. And I also want to talk about episode eight, the Elysian okay. kingdom. Hey, two of my faves. Yeah. I, I, I hope that we might get to talk about the Elysian kingdom. I was going to tell you that that was what I wanted. Yeah. So I think that these, sure, these so. three episodes are my favorite of the season i watched it like i said the first five again today and like there are there's zero filler like in this it's like a 10 they're 10 episode seasons so there really can't be yeah and there's nothing that is like a you know just like a huge mess but these are the ones that really stand out i will say i love spock amok i love the episode five where they do their little their little body swap moment so the spock in this show is much younger and he is engaged to uh to pring to pring and the the whole premise of this episode is that he has a very important negotiation coming up and she is uh, basically she's like a rehabilitator she like works with vulcan prisoners to uh, help them understand logic again so that they might you know like change their ways or like live better yeah. in society yeah and you actually you might not know this but there this is a actually a direct reference to an episode from the original series. Oh, really? Who switches um, bodies this, on that? 
Um, they do. Oh, the, those the two, two of them do. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's it's just or that that is where Tapring is. Maybe they don't switch bodies, but Tapring is a character from mm-hmm. the original series who is like introduced in an episode that's called A Mock Time. Oh, okay, okay, that makes a lot of yes. sense. I didn't know that, but I enjoyed it anyway. Yes, correct. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a great episode. There's there's a there's like a twist on this episode in season two as well that I uh, had yeah. a lot of fun with. Yeah. Um, I, I will say you said you've only seen how many episodes in season two? The first two. First two. Okay. Ad Astra per Aspera. Oh man, we got to talk about that one. Per Aspera. Yeah. The Serene Squall. Anyway, the Serene Squall. Oh my god. Oh my god. I I mean, can you give like do you can you give like the pitch for this episode? <laughs> the thing is about the Serene Squall is like okay, how much do you like watching television where people are really hot? <laughs> <laughs> because oh if that's your thing, you should definitely watch the Serene Squall. If only to observe Jesse James Keitel as maybe one of the hottest characters I've seen on TV in the last five years, um, a person named Angel. I was trying to decide how I would um, introduce them, whether or not I would spoil what <laughs> what oh, their role in all of yeah. this is. How are we feeling? Are we going to talk about the details of the episode in a way that maybe if we're convincing people to listen to this, we should? I don't know how we talk about this episode without talking about who this person is. Okay. That is my, I don't think we can, I don't think we need to spoil the end, but. Yeah. I think the the thing is here, the conceit is that Dr. Angel is not who they appear to be. Right. And to be Um, fair, you know that pretty early if you're paying attention. From the jump. Right. Like I, so I talked about this Tumblr post I wanted to bring and it's basically (laughs) just gifts from this episode and it's, it's, it's screenshots of Tumblr posts on gifts of this episode. And so it's, uh, is it Dr. Aspen? I think it's Dr. Aspen. Dr. Aspen, yeah, that's yeah. right. So Their it's Dr. Aspen Angel. saying, thank you, this means everything to me. And the Tumblr post is, unreliable narrator to you, I believe them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there are so many things about this episode that are so fun. So it's like a little bit of like a a reverse heist, if you right. will, right? Like there's, there's, they fall into a trap laid by pirates. This is a classic, a classic Star Trek premise, right? The... The vibes of the whole episode are so funny, if in large part because of the character of Angel, Mm -hmm. who is like there as like this very serious, like they presented to the crew as an aid worker. Mm -hmm. But the show is doing the thing where it's like... This person, it's not, they're not who they seem. And also, they're definitely the bad guy. Like, I think it's like, oh, you're supposed to believe that this aid worker is like a just a cool, normal aid worker and not definitely not the villain, despite the fact that they're wearing a a mesh a, me, a, bl- a black mesh panel bodysuit that it covers every inch of their body and they have a million earrings in their ears and, and like a t- like a doctor strange fucking popped collar like, and like a like, face tattoo like 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 the most severe haircut you've yes. ever seen on a person blunt to the to the day mm-hmm. anyway they're so hot and the episode is really funny and also like a good episode but like there's like a funny little subplot that you get for Pike and um, Rebecca Romaine. Why can't I remember? 
Her name, Number Una. Number one, Una? Yeah. <laughs> Number one, yes, Una. I just can think of Rebecca <laughs> Romaine because when we were watching it um, and she first came on screen, my partner said to me, is that Rebecca Romaine Stamos? And I said, they got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. It's just Rebecca Romaine these days. <laughs> um, anyway, so yes, it is her. Um, so the, the hook of the episode is, right, it, there's deceit in many directions happening here. Um, you get a great, like, uh, romantic tension storyline between Spock and T'Pring, right, who are, like, resolving their issues. Their relationship has become complicated, as T'Pring mm-hmm. says it. Um, you get a moment of, like, oh, Spock has to do something he doesn't want to do, yeah. but he he thinks it's the only way to solve it. Um, you get a remarkable moment between him and Nurse Chapel convincing to Pring that they're having an affair. I, I will say one thing that I do think that could make Star Trek Strange for New Worlds better is if more people kiss. Agreed. They should kiss more. Oh, I, um, why did Captain Angel not kiss Captain Pike? That needed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. They should all just kiss. Like, <laughs> is the thing. is There should be more kissing. And I would like it more if there was. Jesse James Cattell um, delivers this line. And it's so simple. Like, she's sitting uh, on, uh, to be clear, Jesse uses she, her. Jesse the uses she, her uses pronouns. They Angel them. uses they, them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jesse is sitting uh, in, like, the captain's chair for story reasons. All right. Let's see what this thing can do. Fire phasers. <laughs> oh, this is fun what is your objective you have control <laughs> she goes, of the ship. oh this is fun and like the person in that chair at that moment is not captain angel it's jesse james <laughs> Kaitel, like living her life she's so hot i know that i've said that like four times now but like the thing is that i just like i don't even i i'm i'm i am at a gay loss for words i am so gay I I'm honestly so that's like mostly what this episode is for me. <laughs> this this episode is like some good spapple content. It is Jesse James Keitel, and it's just like a fun little romp. Like Pike's like kind of a side character in the last three episodes, but well, I guess the last episode is mostly about yeah, him. Yeah. But like he's really just a side character in this one. Yes. And there he's really doing his little side character hijinks, yeah. you know? And 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 it's fun and they're like you know, they're inciting a mutiny and having their own little fun time over there. And everybody's like doing their own little bit to contribute to the mutiny. And it's it's fun and funny. Um, that's the Serene Squall. Do you have anything else to say about the Serene Squall? Um, who knew? Well, sorry. This is, that's a sarcastic who knew. <laughs> who knew my favorite episode in Star Trek Strange New Worlds would be about space pirates. Mm. That's only been my thing this whole time. Mm-hmm. I, I should I should be more specific. Queer space pirates. Correct. That's. Mm-hmm. chef's kiss right in my wheelhouse and if that's your wheelhouse too you should definitely watch all of the six episodes before this episode the seventh episode of strange new worlds yeah uh you also should walk our, watch our flag means death which only loses the space in that scenario correct yes if you're i'm just gonna wager like I would, I would put five dollars that if you're listening to this show, you've already. I was going to say you probably already watched death. that. I'm probably <laughs> preaching to the literal choir at the moment. <laughs> so, you said the Elysian Kingdom is an episode you definitely want us to talk about, and oh, I totally know why. This episode. So, one of the things you said to me 
or you said in our notes was, hey, I miss the holodeck. I miss the holodeck desperately. Like, that is one thing that New Trek is missing that I, that is like, one of my absolute favorite things about Old Trek. I love holodeck episodes. I think they're so silly. They're so fun. And as like a person who loves TV and movies, there's such a clear reason for me why they exist, right? Like it's about budget. It's Mm -hmm. about, you know, wanting to do fun, different little stories, right? I love the ones where they're like in detective novels or doing a Sherlock Holmes thing or anything. I love, yes. (laughs) I love the holodeck. And so I miss the holodeck a lot. And I loved the Elysian Kingdom because while it is not a holodeck episode, it is reminiscent of episodes where there is some sort of holodeck situation that leaks out onto the rest of the ship, a thing that happens more than one time, right? And that it's just such a good way for them to introduce that kind of element. Um, And it's just the episode itself is, is very good. Um, storytelling and it, it's it's was very nice to see Dr. Mabenga get yeah. a primary storyline that was about his like big conflict but wasn't about his big conflict in a way that felt sad at the end in the way that it has in other episodes right. so I think and this happens in the first like two or three episodes so it's not huge spoilers but that we're referring to Dr. Mabenga's uh, big conflict. Um, In the first couple of episodes, he's really protective of the emergency transporter in um, the med bay, right? Um, He, there's a episode early on where they're trying to um, sort of diagnose the problem with some of the like, you know, viral and bacterial filters in the, in the transporters and whatnot. And uh, Hammer, the chief engineer comes over and like tries to fix it. And they have a little small altercation and and basically Hammer leaves and come to find out the reason that he's so protective of it is because something or someone is stored in the pattern buffer of that transporter. And that person is his daughter who has what I've been calling space leukemia. Yeah. (laughs) Which is basically what it is. Um, Signo leukemia is what they call it. But yeah. He's keeping her in there because when she's in the pattern buffer, she's not aging. Her disease isn't progressing, but he can... Bring her out and read a story to her, you know, every once in a while. And it keeps her able to be there semi-permanently. And it uh, basically, you know, lets him continue to try and find a cure for the thing that she's afflicted with. And his whole thing is like, hey, we're going to all these planets. One of them is going to have something we've never seen. Yeah. And you know what? He's right. That yeah. he they they encounter technology that helps him think that he might be on the way to finding a cure. Yeah. And and so, you know, I love that pre- the premise of this conflict. I think a lot of other characters have conflicts that um, we're more familiar with, right? Conflicts of you know, losing their families um, in, you know, some sort of conflict in space or coming to Starfleet by more traditional means of like having family members who are in Starfleet. But I love this version of there is there is knowledge out there that we do not have yet. Mm -hmm. And that could help. I love that that premise. So anyway, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> he he takes his daughter out of the pattern buffer on a regular basis and he frequently reads her a story. And it, it doesn't really matter why. You can watch the episode and we're going to tell you the whole thing. But the whole premise of this episode is that he walks onto the bridge one day after some stuff has gone gone on. And everyone there is dressed in like 
storybook medieval gear and it's claiming yeah. to be other people and the ship is kind of dressed up like medieval times yeah. right and i mean like the restaurant slash show medieval like times the, right it looks like ren fair yes. exploded on a starship correct and like they're like going by other names and claiming to have other backgrounds and they're what, referring to him as king right is that what it is yes he is the king yeah i came to see ortegas but ortegas Oh, you mean Sir Adia? Come, come. Sir Adia? From the book? The book, sire. Is this some kind of a joke, Captain? If it is jokes you desire, I could summon the court jester. Summon the court no. jester! Hold the jester! It's just... You all dressed up like characters from the book I've been reading to my... And there's this conflict between all of them. Sayuro's Gooding, uh, Uhura, is playing this, like, evil, like, ice queen kind of character. And yeah. she's fucking selling it. And I, I like, it. I feel like they put Celia in that dress explicitly for me and the other gay men watching this <laughs> show. Yeah. Uh. Really also maybe for little black girls everywhere, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. also for you and but all also the other me. gay men watching this show. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> That, to be fair, this episode is the one that made me, like, go to Tumblr and be like, there has to be a fandom for this, right? The, Very much The episode so. before was so. the one that I was like, okay, this show's incredible. But yeah. Elysian Kingdom was the one that made me go, okay, this is on Tumblr. And I think that, like, the thing about this episode is that sometimes one of the things that I love about holodeck episodes, right, is that they're often very contrived, mm -hmm. right? Like there's, there is such a specific formula and here the formula is at its best, right. right? Like it is contrived. It is familiar. If you have watched a Star Trek thing before, or if you've watched any thing where the story comes to life, right. And you're like, Oh, I know what's going on here. Right. But where strange new world hits its stride in relying on this formula is the actor who plays Dr. Mabenga um, is incredible. Mm -hmm. He has a quiet gravitas that lends to lends to this kind of episode where like in many other scenarios on the ship, he's the straight man with a wink, right? Mm -hmm. in, in terms of like the comedy setup. Right, 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 right. Um, maybe heterosexual. Yeah, I don't know. That's not really, really <laughs> talked about. Um, yeah. So, but like, he's the straight man with a wink and a nod. Mm -hmm. You know, he he's in on the joke, but he is, you know, the the one who is not making the joke usually. Right. And he and, also has like a, a besides just his daughter, he has a very dark past. Right. Like season two yes. explores his his history as a military doctor. Right. Yes, and like, yeah. and and what that means for his service on this ship. And it's clear that he has a, a close connection to another character, to La'an's character, um, who is very explicitly um, her violent past is explored in both seasons one right. and season two. Well, and so something that is explored in season two a lot is his relationship to Nurse Chapel and, and yes. her service and their service together in the Klingon yes. Wars. Yeah. All of this to say, he brings this quiet gravitas to an impossible scenario where he's basically just like, what are you all doing? <laughs> he's like Why the last person like that should right be now? the main character right? of this like storybook fantasy. And he's just kind of going around being like, snap out of it, maybe? Like, what? Are, what? Okay, okay. Right. And he quickly puts it together. Right? Right. He's quickly like, OK, something's going on. I just have to figure out whatever is yeah, going this, on. And right? he like quickly puts together like this is the story that he reads his daughter 
Yes. Right, every time yeah. he brings her out of the pattern buffer. I also just want to call out Spock in this episode <laughs> as like the mage <laughs> that kind of looks like a rock star. <laughs> I actually love, I think something that I really, really love about both this episode and I believe it is actually the beginning of episode two where we first meet, to, the episode mm-hmm. where we first meet to Pring. Um, Spock has a dream where he is fighting himself mm-hmm. because one of the big conceits is the one of the big conceits for Scott, Spock period right is that he is half human half um, Vulcan mm-hmm. and he is very conflicted about this half human half Vulcan nature the moments where we get to see the actor who plays Spock not as Spock traditionally mm-hmm. Makes me go, whoa. Oh my God, He's AC, really you're going to love actor. the rest of season two. You're <laughs> oh. going to love it so much. Heck yeah. Um, you know, I just, I just think that like he noticing Ethan Peck's, sorry, I can keep, I can refer yeah. to him by his name. Noticing Ethan Peck's like incredible acting chops, mm-hmm. like really, truly coming to the surface in those moments where you realize like, so much of Spock is just like he is actually making no facial expression so intentionally mm-hmm. that it feels surprising when you see him express emotions in other places and not just like in the when Spock, you know, taps into his anger, right? Right, right. Which he does, he gets big mad, um, <laughs> uh, understandably so. But he, I he wish really that you all could see the like hand motions, gets that he's big just mad, making. he's a little dinosaur, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a big tough guy, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's funny because I think of it very similar to the way we talked about uh, Robert Downey Jr. in the beginning of the show right like we have Listen. we have seen robert downey jr play himself for so long that watching him act we're like oh this is a revelation right yeah. whereas like ethan peck it's the opposite direction right like, we're watching him act all the time never yeah. off and the moments where we do get to see him sort of like bring that down a little bit and play a different version of a human spock right is yeah. like Oh, you're like, oh, you're really good at this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. there's a reason you're and, on the show. <laughs> and it makes it makes the experience that much more immersive, right? right? And I, I think the other thing about this episode is that the, the storyline that it is weaving is one that tugs at the heartstrings and, like, plays on the fantastical possibilities of space, right? Mm-hmm. Without saying too much, right? That thing... That he doesn't know that Dr. Mabenga doesn't know what it is that is out there that could cure his daughter. One of those other possibilities comes to fruition in the telling of this story. Mm-hmm. I, my partner, my partner asked me at the beginning of this episode, basically, like, is it sad? Like, does does this thing happen? Is it sad? And I was like, well, I don't know. It It is sad, but I don't know if it is tragic yeah that's a good way to say it it, it's like this it's this moment of finding the answer and not knowing before you've discovered the answer what the cost will be and it is a question of are you willing to make the cost like is the cost enough you know or is it too much right and it's it's that sort of bittersweet understanding that like sometimes the answer that you were seeking is not going to take the shape that you expected Sometimes it will do what you intend, but not in the way that you expect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is goofy fantasy, really, <laughs> really fun acting, and like stellar science fiction. Yeah. It's it's an ex- it's the clearest maybe example of like why this show is like worth your time, right? Yeah, extremely planned of the week, but in a way that is that changes the characters moment to moment. Yeah, but I think that that's true, right? Like the Serene Squall and like 
this episode, these two episodes back to back are certainly emblematic of it, right? They take a somewhat kitschy, well-known premise, Mm -hmm. right? And despite you knowing the setup, despite (laughs) understanding everything about, and, and, and I think like, for me, a person who watches a lot of television like this, one of the things that's hard is that at a certain point, like, you just kind of know how it's going to go, yeah. right? Like, right? Like, I think we talked about uh, a few episodes ago, I said something like, my partner doesn't watch a lot of TV, and so she doesn't know about the fall, mm-hmm. right? Like, that that fall can be surprising to her. Mm-hmm. And so for me, a an avid TV watcher, what is the most fun and the most enjoyable are the show's where I do know what's coming. Like, I do know the pre- it's predictable, mm-hmm. but I am genuinely enjoying the performance, the atmosphere, the writing so much that I am not bothered by the fact that I know what's coming next. It is, in fact, reassuring. Mm-hmm. And this show does surprise sometimes, right? There are surprises. There are twists and turns. There are versions of this story that are distinctly different from other Star Treks. There, there are moments where different kinds of story get to be told and also like it just doesn't it doesn't put as pretty of a bow on it as Mm -hmm. a lot of the others do i think without giving too much of a spoiler you know there's a character there there are a number there there is actually more than one there's there's a few moments in the show where they acknowledge that like crew members die Mm -hmm. and and that's something that's sometimes missing from some of the original Mm -hmm. um the older series but they do it in a way that feels more true to than the version where they're just not acknowledging that like yeah the red shirts are dying you know so tasha yar's death was kind of a mess (laughs) yeah Yeah. spoilers for the first season of next generation second season i can't remember (laughs) the thing you were saying about how it can sometimes surprise you reminded me specifically and you've not seen this one but i just want to like if you like that feeling about how like it's hitting all the beats you expect and that's enjoyable and then occasionally it like flips a switch episode eight which is as of this recording is the latest episode of season two is it's incredible okay i don't love maybe some thematic stuff it implies right but like the stories it's telling with its characters i was floored um that was one that jonathan watched all the way through with me and he does not care about this kind of show okay so okay uh less than than megan even so yeah (laughs) the the last episode i have on our list to to talk to folks about um is the second episode of season two which is ad astra per aspera we're in season two, so there's like a little bit of setup that you need to know to get into this one, which is that Una Chen Riley, number one, we discover pretty early on um, in season one, is from a, a race of humanoid people um, called Illyrians that are infamous in this in this society for genetic manipulation, bioengineering. If you know anything about the original series and yeah. uh Khan Union Singh, who is weirdly relevant to this show as well. <laughs> La'an, yeah. La'an, her last name is Nunyan Singh, right? Um yes, she, she is, is an a descendant. Uh, yes, she's a descendant an of Khan. Yeah. Like yeah. Khan, his whole thing, right, was altering genetic code uh, of the people that followed him. Um, and yeah. that uh, you know, leading to the eugenics wars, you know, which was like a sort of critical traumatic you know part of the history of star trek so uh, illyrians are not welcome 
in Starfleet. And that is an immediate conflict, you know, when Pike finds out. Mm-hmm. And he is, he does the Pike thing where he's just kind of like, screw the rules. Like, you're the best uh, first officer I've ever had or the best op- first officer in Starfleet. Yeah. But the thing is, like, it's very much a setup for her getting found out. Yeah. Episode two of season two is a, is a trial episode, which, like I said earlier, is a classic, classic Star Trek thing. You know, one of the classic episodes of The Next Generation is Measure of a Man to determine determine you know, to what extent Data is a person. Or any of the Q trials, Correct. right? Like all of this right. is. Yeah, yeah, literally that show begins and ends with a trial, right? Correct. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, this episode feels so Next Generation to me. Like just like the setup, the structure, right? The delivery of the arguments. It's very. The question mis- that it's asking. Right. And I mentioned this episode earlier because Pike goes basically, you know, Una is basically kind of given up. She's like, listen, I'm going to go take my lashes and, and leave Starfleet. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I deserve. I lied, et cetera. Um, and he's basically not letting her. <laughs> yeah. um, and he goes to find a, an Illyrian lawyer, right, that can, mm-hmm. like, help her out in this case. And goes to convince. Sorry, I'm just screaming about the lawyer. Uh, I, well, I have to know what you're screaming about. He, go, he goes basically to find her old friend yes. and to bring her onto the case. And like I said, she is the first person to bring this into the context of race mm-hmm. in, in any discussion about like Illyrians. And she's a black woman. Yeah. And this show is made up of a lot of different kind of people. But like in, in regards to Illyrians, most of the people we've seen, you know, talk about it are, are white people uh, up to this point. Yeah. So I, I just thought it was really stellar. Tell me why you're having so many good feelings oh, about the, this lawyer. Oh, she's so good. Yeah. I mean, the this is, I think, like a moment that I think you could read the show as like a little bit ham-fisted, oh, right? Yeah. In, oh, in the way that it's like clearly being like a black woman is going to deliver to you these questions about who belongs in humanity and who does not right. and who has been excluded and who who has been, you know, lauded for the things that Illyrians are accused of, but you're, you're so right. She's, she's just so good. And, and the tension and relationship and like acknowledgements between her and Una number one are remarkable. I mean, I think like from start to finish, this is a, this is a Star Trek episode truly to its core. Right. And like, I mean that in like the truest sense, like this is an episode that could hold its own, and punches above its weight in some ways, I think, um, in terms of the acting. Mm-hmm. Her name is, uh, I'm going to pronounce this without looking it up, but it's Yatide Badaki is, is her name. Yeah. The actress. Yeah. Yes, the actress. Yeah. I don't remember what the lawyer's name is. Uh, Nira Katul. Nira. Nira right. is, okay. is mostly what I remember. Um, yeah. In, but yeah, she... She is representing uh, Una in this trial. And I think what's really interesting is the, the episode and Nira specifically, right, in this episode are, the question is not, does Una deserve to be in Starfleet, right? I think everyone, maybe except for the people that are putting her on trial in this episode, <laughs> kind of agrees that, like, Una has only done good things, the lie was to get her in a position where she has like basically only delivered good work. Right. And she's like ultimately a good person in this. And this lie is like not a big enough lie to keep her away from that. That's kind of, that's, I think that's the position of the episode, but I also think it's like a side point. What I found more interesting was Nira talking about what this case could do for Illyrians. Right. Yeah. And what does winning this case make things worse for Illyrians? 
does winning this case in certain ways make it worse for Illyrians? Does when it does, does losing the case make it better or does winning in a different way make it better? Could she ultimately lose this case, but make a case for Illyrians, but you know, leave Una behind, right? Still right. May, maybe advance the Illyrian society's connection to the Federation, right? Um, make progress in the decades or maybe centuries of uh, like hatred and exclusion towards Illyrians, but maybe Una's no longer in Starfleet. That, that is a right. real reality that she sets up at the beginning of this episode. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, it, it is a real reality that, like, people who litigate on civil rights and civil liberties yeah. in America consider, right? If we are not going to win, what are we going to say in court? Like, there is just as much a matter of, like, what becomes of the record of the court. And right. this is why so many people have, like, I'm going to get a little, like, nerdy and wonky in a different way here, right? Like, there's a lot of... um sense of like entering something into the official record and like an amicus brief and who can file amicus briefs and at the supreme court there's i mean every court you can refer not every court anyway friend friend of the court briefs is or amicus briefs right like these are often filed by people who have a perspective to give Mm -hmm. to the court right and that perspective what makes it into how the court talks about and thinks about sometimes comes from amicus briefs, not just from the arguments that are had before the court. And so, like, what becomes a matter of record? If, if, and, like, this is not an example that I love, right? But there is something to be said for, you know, if in a case where the court is talking about transgender people and the rights of transgender people, if at the beginning of of the case or the beginning of the trial, the court doesn't have good language to use to talk about transgender people, mm-hmm. and through the course of the argument, I mean, I guess this is just the episode. This is just the episode. Right. Through the course of the argument, learns better language to talk about transgender people. And while it doesn't find for the person... It learn the the court learns something, right? Then is that valuable, right? What is the sacrifice that we're willing to make? And I think that like I will say to Una's credit, she takes it on the chin, right? She's like she's a little bit upset about it, <laughs> but she understands her mm-hmm. position that she can give, right? If her record and like there's a little bit of like the I mean it's it's not without its problems. Mm-hmm. It certainly is saying like. If Una can prove that she is the model minority by having her really good Starfleet record that right. they are all going to look at and say, wow, you have had a really good record of service. And that proves to us that there are good Illyrians out right. there, right? Like that has its own problems, but it is also a question worth asking because there is an understanding that in the dominant system, some of what we have to do is prove to the dominant system that it is it needs to change its mind about something. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, we see this in, in talk of like good immigrants as well. Right. That's like, it's basically model minority in a different context. Very much. I, I, I want to say this cause I, I think it's at risk of spoiling some things, but I also think it's worth the conversation. This case ends up hinging on the concept of asylum. Yeah. Again, one of those things that's like the show being ham fisted, but I also found to be extremely um, resident for me yeah. this is a person existing in the world right yeah watching those moments right without let's say talking about the results but like 
watching those moments, I was feeling things about the real world um, in the ways I think some of the best, the best media that I consume, right. Makes yeah. me think. And like, was a ham fisted? Sure. Was it cheesy? Absolutely not. Right. No, it, it, it was like, it was delivered in such a way that all of the context was there. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not sort of, sort of papered over and really glossy. It's, it's, it's pretty, yeah. it's, it set itself up to deliver appropriately. Yeah. I, you know, it's actually really interesting. I don't think that that is something that I would classify as ham fisted. I think that it's deliberate, mm. but it's not ham fisted. Maybe that's right. It is intentional. It mm-hmm. is trying to call your attention to something in the real world that we experience, mm-hmm. right? And that we see. But I think that, like, there are little details about it that make it feel just deliberate rather than, you know, kitschy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, like, there's this moment, too, of, like, there are steps in the process that she needed to have followed mm-hmm. to ask for asylum. Mm-hmm. And maybe that wasn't what she was intending to do. But, like, I don't know. Without, again, without going too far into it, I think for you know, our listeners at home, the thing that you need to know is that it tells a really compelling story and it is illuminating and thought provoking and understanding, I think even without saying what the result is, right? Like the complicated aspect of asking for asylum and redress, Mm -hmm. like from uh, an a governing authority. Well, and I thought as, as a person who has thought for years on these problems, right? Sure. The uh, relationship between one's safety and one's personal relationships with the people at home. Yeah. Nira and Una have an existing relationship as children and Una's decision to be in Starfleet affected that. And this case affects it too, right? Yeah. When this, when I say that this show is about characters, right, first and like yeah. plot second, this is an episode I can point to and be like, it's telling me a story about Una and Nira and also yeah. delivering on the rest of it. Yeah, I really think that that too, I I hadn't even thought to talk about the way that they position Una and Nira's relationship is, I think one of the first times in this show that I genuinely felt like, a twinge of heartbreak about Mm -hmm. it. You know, I think there are other moments in season one where something sad happens or like there is a loss and I felt that loss. But this was the one that I was like, oh, fuck. (laughs) Oh, they've got some shit going Mm -hmm. on. Right. And like, I also think that like it, it is, it is a good, there is an interesting thing happening here of like, Many of the larger conceits of Star Trek as a whole, the larger philosophical questions that it asks, have to do with race and racism and belonging, Mm -hmm. right? And who belongs where and when and in what way? Mm -hmm. And how do we break down or build up those understandings? And this episode, as we've said, is emblematic of all of the best versions of that conversation i mean this is the job of speculative fiction and science fiction generally right like it exists entirely (laughs) (laughs) to ask questions about the real world by providing wild scenarios that don't exist right (laughs) and like star trek has always been delivering those conversations i mean since the beginning 
right? Yeah. And and the reason that the original series, you know, we talked earlier about how like it's kind of dated, right? Especially in regards yeah. to, to anti-Semitism. The reason that it has changed is because the world that it is referencing has changed. Yeah. It's not just because times have changed and like we don't write scripts this way anymore. Like it, yes, it's that. But it's primarily because the job of science fiction is to comment on the real world. And if the real the base reality, right, we're not talking about simulation theory here, but that, I'm just using that, <laughs> that, that word. If, if, like, if reality has changed, then the reality being commented on by science fiction has changed. 100%. And that just like if, if your show is narratively cohesive in that way, you're doing science fiction yeah. correctly. Yeah, I, I think that is, that is so true and such a good point. And so, I mean, like, my favorite, favorite speculative fiction, all of it does this as best it can, right? Like that is, if you have read the book Infomocracy by Malka Older, that is a speculative fiction piece that takes the world that we exist in now and projects it into the future in a way that I feel is like incisive and delightful. And this show does the exact same thing, right? Projects us. Um, I got the joy of explaining to my partner, like how, what a star date is and how star dates work and like what it means in terms of like how far into the future they are from us. Right. And like, she, by the way, doesn't like that. Um, <laughs> it starts with a four because it's the 24th century. Mm. She was like, so why would, why wouldn't it be 24? And I'm like, well, because it's counting from the 20th century, which mm -hmm. is when, humans became adjacent to like warp power mm -hmm. in the uh, 21st century is actually when humans got warp power in the star trek universe anyway the point is <laughs> it's counting from one particular moment in time yeah, yeah 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 and and so you know the thinking about like okay what is the 24th century look like mm -hmm. this show certainly delivers on a version of the 24th century that i find compelling and interesting and like i don't know if exciting is the right word like is it exciting that some of the same problems that exist now continue to exist into the future no but is that what the show is trying to say or is the show giving us commentary on what is now could always be yeah i don't think anyone's like saying that this is like one of those like cheesy history channel like future projection things like that's a that's a brand of content you can watch it's sure. out there this is science fiction right it's commenting on our current world by imagining a future one yeah and i mean i think the other thing is is too right that there are often things that are prescient even before we knew they were prescient so well remains to be seen whether or not <laughs> we'll build a warp core engine and take to space in a giant disc yeah i will say one of my favorite examples um i think of of speculative fiction doing this work in the right way is Hank Green's books. Oh yeah. Like he's specifically yeah. commenting on the near future mm -hmm. in regards to celebrity in regards to alt-right politics and like what that means, right. For the, the future of communication between one another and like yeah. how communication changes and like why it's difficult when communication gets faster, all things he said on the YouTube channel for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. But I, I really enjoy his books for that reason because I can see the parallels and like what he thinks the answers might be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I was referencing in terms of prescient media is Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, right. which is like a another example of a near future um, imagining, right? That now takes place in our overlaps in timeline with our current mm -hmm. time and, and, and feels prescient in many ways. So. Yeah. 
Anyway, so those are some other media yeah. recommendations <laughs> that you should watch. You should watch <laughs> Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Paramount+. Plus. We're in the middle of season two right now. I actually don't have many episodes there are this season. Maybe it's just 10 again. I'm not sure. I think it's just 10 again. There's been some crazy good stuff that even ac has not seen i haven't seen it yet and i'm uh, so excited we've to got go more watch. spock fun times we've got a really harrowing uh military history one Oof. we've got a crossover with star trek's uh, the lower decks which uh was such a fun time yeah and the characters that show up from that show in this one uh, if you don't know that's an animated tv show and the yeah, actors who play them <laughs> yeah. the, the voice actors are actually in the the real oh, like the, in the show. It's uh, <laughs> is it Jack Quaid? Is that his name? And Tawny Newsom. Nice. And that episode's super fun. And I'd never seen. Speaking of, I'd never seen the Lower Decks. And I had a good time. So delightful. I'm trying to get y'all to watch this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Matt. I think to close us, you should just insert here the clip of Captain Pike from the end of episode seven, where he says, Arrgh, <laughs> I can do that. Arrgh, me mateys. If we ever catch Angel, we should make them walk the plank, Arrgh. Please stop. <laughs> Please stop. I will. The, the immediate, the immediate follow-up of, yeah. of, of Una saying... Please stop. (laughs) I will definitely be inserting clips all over this episode. If I don't have, oh, this is fun in this episode, I fucked up. Oh, this is fun. (laughs) Uh, Hey. Okay, wait, hang on. Hang on. Wait. When Angel is standing in Spock's, not in Spock's quarters, but they're in the room with Spock and it's just them and Spock and they're standing behind Spock. In that full body, like cat suit, uh-huh. mesh panel cat suit, and it's just they're just standing there, and you're like, "That's not the bad guy." <laughs> Sorry, they're standing there like that, and that's not the bad guy. You're supposed, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm supposed to believe that that's not the bad. Like Spock isn't looking at them and being like, "That's the bad guy," right? Like that's like, like the little pea brain inside Spock's mm-hmm. head said. They're hot. I forgot everything <laughs> that I know about the world until I picked up on one context clue. Also, that they're doing stuff in that episode with like cinematography to like not feature them as much. You know, yeah. like they're like trying to be like, oh, this person's not, you know, uh, on one of the thirds or the center of the screen. So they are not important. And then, of course, they are. Of course, they're the bad guy. Of course, they are. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that is the show i think that's the season that's the show wow matt we did it did it uh we will be back october november ish we'll be back soon early november i think is probably the right answer for you it'll be like a month from now yeah that's the other thing i want to (laughs) fix is that right now (laughs) we are around two months not behind but like we record and then the episode comes out around two months later that is great in terms of like scheduling episodes. What it's not great for is that, for example, we talked about Hank Green's cancer diagnosis in the episode that releases on <laughs> Tuesday, and he has finished his treatment and is like talking about how there's no cancer in his body anymore. He's in remission. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not that we need to be super timely. It's not really like a timely show, right. but like I would like to be at least somewhat relevant, you know? Yes. It doesn't. We are both people who think thinky thoughts about media and also who think thinky thoughts about current events. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that we're getting things to you in a timeline that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. 
So we'll probably uh, be a little bit quicker and a little bit more relevant in those instances. But in the meantime, where can people find you That's on the internet? Faster, <laughs> uh, people can find me on the internet on so in so many places. Matt, you can find me somehow. At the end of all of this, you know what? Maybe not by the time that this episode airs. So I shouldn't say you can still yeah. find me on the platform that shall not be named. Because X. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> you can find me on Blue Sky, AC Fachi, dot B Sky, dot app. Is that right? I have no Did idea. Did I remember? Nope, I social? got it wrong this time. It is dot social yeah. at acfachi.bsky.social. You can find me on Instagram at ac underscore fachi. And you can just generally find me haunting you in the corners of the internet. I'm there. They're there. Somewhere. Watch out. You can find me at matthorton.live. I got threads there. I got blue sky there. I got Mastodon there. To be totally honest, I've been mostly using threads. Um, I've been posting everywhere, but like threads is where I've kind of landed for now. We'll see how long that lasts. And hey, you can follow the podcast. You can follow the podcast there. We've got an account both on Instagram and on threads. It's at can't let it go dot gay. The dot is is the dot. It's not like dot. It's the dot. <laughs> and figuring out what goes there is going to be part of the things that we figure out in the next couple months or so. Yeah. And um, hey, if there are things that you want to hear us talk about, we'd love to hear about it. Actually, um, I just want to like publicly say this. If we know you and we're friends and there's something you want to talk about on the show, get in our DMs. Yeah. Come talk to us on the show about stuff. We want to talk to you. Um, at this point, you've probably heard the episode of uh, around Disney parks that our friend Mitch yes. did with us. So yes. you know what that can look like. And it can look like anything you want it to look like. It could look like something completely different. I will also say, Matt, um, I got thoroughly roasted by a friend of the podcast, Elizabeth, for using our premise of this little show um, as a conversation starter at a party. And I really have to say that um, if you live like me in a very career core place, I live in Washington, D.C., everybody here asks you, what do you do? And that's a boring question question to ask a new person so i would recommend asking them the next time you don't know what to say what's something you can't stop thinking about and seeing what kind of answer you get that's amazing i appreciate that elizabeth roasted you for that i'm a podcast bro now so i'm i'm incorrigible all right folks well we will talk to you in november see you on the flip side <laughs>